Okay, welcome to Unsafe Space. Just going to wait a minute for some people to join. Let's see. I'll also tweet out to tell everyone that we are online and live. I'm your host, by the way, Carter Laren. We're going to talk about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's platform today. It should be, should be fun. So buckle up. While we're waiting for, for people to join, I will say, I mean, so this, this video of Jim Acosta holding the mic at the White House press conference and Sarah Sanders tweeted it. And of course, she, she tweeted this, this version that Paul Joseph Watson had tweeted out in which he zoomed in on the, on the hand where Jim Acosta touched the intern. Honestly, obviously, it, wasn't, it clearly wasn't in any kind of intentional attack on Jim Acosta's part. But regardless, Sarah Sanders tweeted it out and she shows this. And, you know, of course, the media said, oh, it's been manipulated, it's been doctored. And my first response was, that's ridiculous. It's just slowed down and zoomed. Or it's just zoomed in. Not even nothing's happened. They just zoomed in in on it. That's that doesn't count as doctored. But then, you know, I, I made the mistake that I always do of trying to give the media the benefit of the doubt, and I read a little bit more, and I saw some people talk about how, oh look, we can use this technique where we can see that it was slowed down here and sped up there, and I, I did it myself, and I I saw, gee, you know, there is a little bit of. Uh, a difference between these videos and so I even made a little video about it saying well you know maybe Paul Joseph Watson did uh, try and speed this up it wasn't significant and to the naked eye it didn't look any different than the original video so it's still kind of a, a weird claim but of course I was wrong because you know in my video in, in my defense I did say well I don't really know if there's a frame rate conversion thing and maybe it just looks like that and that's turns out uh, it was just a frame rate conversion Paul Joseph Watson was using a an animated GIF, which, uh, yeah, different, different frame rate than the the video that CNN or C-SPAN had. So there you go. And certainly it didn't look any different. So turns out it was fake news after all. When in doubt, it's fake news. That's what I have. That's what I've learned from this. Okay, so we've given enough time for people to come in. Let's talk about Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. She is the newly elected representative from New York's 14th convention, uh, con Congressional District. Uh, maybe I need my tea. It is tea time, by the way. I'm drinking some sort of some sort of tea that my wife just brought back from China. Some black tea. I don't know what it is. But I also have yerba mate as a backup. Anyway, getting back to Miss Ocasio-Cortez. She's, she's, I think, now the youngest congresswoman who have ever been elected to U.S. Congress. And why do I want to go through her, her platform? Well, I think of, I think of Alexandria or Ocasio-Cortez as kind of the basic bitch of millennial leftists. She doesn't have any, there's nothing, she just says the things that every millennial leftist says with about as much thought and facts as and an analysis as any millennial leftist usually brings to the topic. So 
I thought she would be a good example just to go through go through her platform because she was elected and, and she's got uh, 15 points in her platform. And maybe we'll go through them and look at kind of the philosophy underlying underlying each each item. By the way, those of you who have been watching every Tuesday, I was doing uh, universalization of concepts every Tuesday. I think that's a little bit too narrow. I started to get bored with it, so I figure if I'm bored with it, the audience is probably bored with it. So instead, I'm just kind of looking at the philosophic under pinnings or the philosophic implications of political positions in general. And some of that will be universalization and some of it won't be. So before we get into Ocasio-Cortez's platform, though, something did happen today. She is very upset about Amazon. Amazon has has uh, decided on one of their new offices. It's going to be in Long Island City, which is in Queens. And you know, she tweeted about this, uh, a rant about how, you know, Amazon's a billion-dollar company. Uh, what does she say? The idea that it will receive hundreds of millions of dollars in tax breaks at a time when our subway is crumbling and our communities need more investment, not less, is extremely concerning to residents here. You know, actually on that, I so I, I kind of agree with her on that. I think if you're against taxes generally, that includes uh, taxes for all, all companies and, and people, like that's... I get why you might like the idea that Amazon gets tax breaks, but the truth is, when you when you give, if you look at how tax breaks work, large corporations can can leverage their position to get tax breaks, whereas mom and pop or smaller corporations can't because they don't have the clout. And that's really cronyism, right? It's not capitalism. It's that's cronyism. That's uh, you know, leveraging your political connections to get special breaks. And so really the rules should be applied to everyone. And so if Amazon doesn't have to pay taxes in some district, neither should anyone else. And it is unfair and hurt. And so I guess, I guess I'm starting by agreeing with uh, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez on, on that much. But of course, then she goes on to blame Amazon for a whole bunch of things and, 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 and starts to say, when we talk about bringing jobs to the community, we need to dig deep. Has the company promised to hire in the existing community? What's the quality of jobs? How many are promised? Are these jobs low wage or high wage? Are there benefits? Can people collectively bargain? It sounds like she thinks she's being hired and she uh, she has like a personal interest in this and, and, and should be able to ask these questions. You know, uh, it's not the job of government to, to ask those questions about Amazon, but she thinks it is, which is reflective of her overall platform. So let's jump into her platform. So she, I, now I'm just taking this from her website directly. So this isn't me making any, you know, my own assumptions about her platform or anything. This is from her, her plat, her, her website. There's 15 points. They I'll list them quickly. They are Medicare for all housing as a human right, a peace economy, a federal jobs guarantee, gun control slash assault weapons ban, criminal justice reform slash or comma end private prisons uh, immigration justice slash abolish ICE solidarity with Puerto Rico higher educate uh, uh, mobilizing against climate change clean campaign finance higher education slash trade school for all women's rights support LGBTQIA plus but not two spirit people. I think she intentionally left them out. Uh, support seniors. Curb Wall Street gambling. Colon restore Glass Steagall. So that's her thousand points of light for the those uh, 
older people who remember that. Though that's her, that's her very simple plan. Fifteen, her very simple platform. Fifteen points of things. So, so let's walk through, and let's start with Medicare for all. So she says her argument here is she says improved and expanded Medicare for all is the ethical. Mm, so you're talking philosophy here is the ethical, logical, and affordable path to ensuring no person goes without dignified health care. Medicare for all will reduce the existing costs of health care and make Medicare cheaper too by allowing all people in the U.S. to buy into a universal health care system. And she goes on here. I'm, I'm not going to read all of it. But... So this is interesting. She thinks it is a an ethical, logical, and affordable path to ensuring no person goes without dignified health care. Well, first of all, Medicare for all, well, all she says, improved and expanded Medicare for all, it's not that's not really a plan or a path. I guess it I guess it sort of is a path of some kind, but it's not really. It's just a statement. Uh, I want unicorns and ice cream, and I want ice cream to be no calories. Um, so that's it's not really anything. It's is it ethical? Okay, so this is where we really we really get into the philosophy behind almost everything that Ocasio Cortez and people like her spout. What is ethical? Now, ethical implies that there's like some sort of moral good that's being done here, right? Now, why does she think that? Probably because she thinks it's morally good to take care of people. And I don't want to get into an argument or not about whether you could say it's morally good to, to help someone of your own free will and, and charity, Certainly a lot of people do do charity, and it does do good in the world. It can can do good in the world. It can help people. And a lot of private charities do that. But what is Medicare? Medicare is government charity, right? It's government health care. Well, how is that ethical? Where does government, you know, how, how why would, I don't want to get into where does the, because I'll get into it later about where does the government get the money for this, which I know a lot of you are thinking about, and they tax people obviously at gunpoint for it. So there's there's that. But to to view the government as being unethical if it doesn't do this, for example, or this is the ethical thing the government does, you have to really view the government as a parent, right? So I have a daughter. If I don't feed her, that's unethical, right? She's in my charge, she's not capable of surviving on her own out in the world. She will be eventually. She's getting close. But if I don't feed her, if you have a baby and you don't feed your baby and you let it starve, that's unethical, right? Or if your baby gets hurt and you don't bother treating it, so i.e. providing medical care, that's unethical of you to do. Why? Because you're responsible for, for that baby. And that baby can't reasonably be expected to take care of itself, right? But once the child grows up into adulthood, 
responsibility for that child's survival and health and everything else falls on the child because now the child is an adult and it's you can no longer say to the parent well it's unethical for you to pay for your child's health care or food or anything else right now presumably if, if the parent has a good relationship with the child then then they would want to, to do those things but you wouldn't necessarily say it's unethical i mean if if you have a kid who uh i mean doesn't bother to get a job and sits around and smokes pot all day i think a lot of people would sympathize with parents who said you know what we're not subsidizing your rent and your food and your your pizza and your pot get get out right but this is reflective of ocasio-cortez's view of government she views all of us as children in the care of the government and in that scenario you you would think well, gee, it's ethical for the government to give us health care. Why? Well, because they're responsible for us, right? It's not our responsibility. Only an unethical, uncaring, evil parent would withhold health care when they could give health care. So that's really the perspective that she's bringing to this. And you'll see that infused throughout her platform. But I wanted to mention it up front with Medicare because she starts right off the bat with Medicare for all. And I think it's pretty obvious in that one. She also says it's logical, which is not a, a not really true but b doesn't doesn't really it's not an argument it's just saying you know that's like saying my argument is the best it's like when trump says i do the best you know i build the best walls or i, I make the best whatever like that's that's just a claim um and she says uh it's affordable path now this is another thing i want to bring up with her affordable path stuff and she says it in the next sentence medicare for all will reduce the existing cost of health care She views the cost of healthcare as a collective responsibility, right? And you can see this when she's, she was interviewed, uh, she's been interviewed several times about this. And her argument is basically, well, we spend X amount of dollars on healthcare, right? And, and that is too much and we should spend less, right? Now, I don't know how many of you uh, are married to Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez. I'm not. There is no we. Uh, I don't share a checkbook with her. Probably you don't either. Each person pays a different amount for healthcare, and part of the amount that they pay for healthcare depends on their lifestyle choices and and other things. Right? And so sometimes on, on random events that happen to them. But people pay different amounts for healthcare. And so the, the thing off the bat I don't like about this is this idea that we pay for health care, right? We don't. Individuals pay for health care. And if there's someone out there who's not paying for health care, but I am paying for health care, why is it my responsibility to pay for both of our health cares, right? And I, I know the leftist argument would be because they're poor and they can't. I, I get that. But I've, I've been poor in times in my life and haven't been able to afford health care. So why does that why does them being poor entitle them to someone else's labor and and this is a point on healthcare that i want to make explicit here healthcare is not a gift from god that falls out of the sky it's not a creation of government that gets legislated into existence healthcare is doctors 
It's nurses, it's hospitals with infrastructure, it's machines and medical devices, it's pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical research, and and uh, and testing. It is hospice care. It is it is nutritional care, right, and preventative care. Healthcare is is a lot of things, and all of those things are provided by real people. A doctor, someone has to choose to go to medical school and pay for college for medical school, although she would like to eliminate that as well. We'll we'll get to that in a minute. But someone has to pay to go to medical school. They have to postpone the rest of their career. They got to do a crappy internship for for years in in order to to eventually become a full-fledged doctor in a hospital or something or start their own practice. Pharmaceutical companies have to invest billions of dollars in failed drugs to to figure out something that that works well before they can take it to market and make that money back and make profits, which is the incentive for them. But all these things require humans to do something. These are all active, positive requirements for humans to do. Someone has to be your nurse. Someone has to invent and and manufacture and sell the medicine. Someone has to do the test for that. Someone has to pay for all the failed versions of that medicine beforehand. Right? Someone has to build the hospital, build the equipment, sell the equipment, right? All of those people, if your argument is that I should be able to get the productive output from all of those people by force through the government, the government should somehow mandate that they give it to me or maybe there should be you know the government will pay for it mandate that other people pay them some some rates fixed rates or whatever it is uh, you're you're enslaving people essentially and i know that's a, a trigger word for people because nothing's supposed to be compared to slavery i get that but it is a form of of partial slavery right when you're forced to do something or the output of your labor is taken from you, which is taxes and regulation sometimes, you're forcing other people to provide for you. And regardless of how the this is paid for, whether how the how the structure actually is, at the end of the day, if you're getting something from the government like Medicare, like medical treatment or pills or whatever it is, someone else is paying for that. And it doesn't mean that they're just reaching into it's not not King Midas reaching into his infinite uh, gold store paying for it. Someone works. Someone gets up. They work their ass off. They try. They fail. They have you know, good days and bad days. They, they work hard. And you are claiming that you are entitled to the output of their labor. That's a pretty detestable philosophic position to take. I don't think that's how Ocasio-Cortez sees this, and I don't think that's how her supporters see it, because I think that their their philosophic view here is, is flawed in that they don't see a difference between the man-made and the like nature nature's the result of nature i think ayn rand talked about this and i think she talked to i think the phrase she used was the metaphysical versus the man-made right there's things that are just there and then there's things that people have to actually produce and medicare 
any medical or healthcare product is something that other people have to produce, right? And I think the flaw in a lot of this thinking is there's something that someone wants that they feel like is important and maybe is really important to their life, like, like health insurance or, or healthcare in some, in some aspect of healthcare. They feel it's really important and, and they want it. And therefore, their solution is, well, we'll just require that it gets provided by the universe. And, of course, that's not possible. You can go outside and scream up at the universe all you want for, you know, a good doctor. But the universe will not provide. But if you scream at government, maybe they will steal someone's money to pay for a good doctor for you. Or even compel a doctor uh, to... uh, compel a doctor to, to, to treat you or whatever. So that's the kind of philosophic view here. And I think it's important to understand because, like I said, it's a through line in a lot of Ocasio-Cortez's positions, is this idea that government should provide as if it's a parent and that the onus does not is not on the individual. Now, she also says that it will be cheaper and she cites this rising cost of, the, of, of healthcare. And she says that universal healthcare will be cheaper. And she says, what does she say here? I want to get this right. At this point in the US, we've tried almost every other system of healthcare. And we know it doesn't work. This is, this is interesting. So let's see if I can get this. I think I can show you a graph here. Hold on for just a second. Maybe I can show you this graph. Yeah, there's the graph. So for those of you who are listening, I'll walk you through it. For those of you who are watching, you can see this. This is the total national healthcare expenditures in billions of dollars uh, adjusted for 2016 dollars. So this isn't, uh, you can't just argue that this is due to inflation in the US, right? From 1970 to, to 2016. And in 1970, you can see that the total national health expenditure was somewhere around, looks like a little bit under $100 billion. I don't have the exact number, but you can look at the chart. And in 2016, oh, actually, if we do adjusted, sorry, if we do adjusted uh, constant $2016, it was somewhere around $400 billion. So sorry about that. So somewhere around $400 billion in, in constant $2016. And then in 2016, it's somewhere around $3.3 trillion. So that is, that is what's happened with healthcare and the cost of healthcare. So before she says we've tried almost every other system of healthcare and it, we know it doesn't work, actually, it might be behoove her to go back and look at what healthcare was like uh, decades ago in the 70s and before. Obviously, technology has gotten better, and so total quality of care has should have improved since then. But in terms of how much healthcare cost, it would behoove her to look at a more free market and what it was like back then. And I think that she would find it's actually government involvement in healthcare that has started to cause skyrocketing costs. And... She says we've tried almost every other system of healthcare. Well, I don't know that that's true, but we have tried other systems, and we have tried a much more freer market in healthcare. And she says we know it doesn't work. Well, speak for yourself, Ocasio Cortez. 
Because we know, actually, some of us know it does work. Maybe, maybe they don't teach history. Maybe they don't, uh, they don't encourage millennials to go look at history anymore and to actually explore anything. Maybe it doesn't work because in her adult life, she hasn't seen it work. And then that's her, her pool of data. But I think if she explores it, she'll see, hey, these skyrocketing costs and this, this out of control crap, it's, it's the government involved. I mean, just a really quick example that's been around for decades is the government regulates the healthcare industry in a way that you can't buy insurance unless it's, it's, your insurance is tied to your state. Now, I don't know where the federal government thinks that they have the right to do that, but they do it. And that means, you know, I'm in California. I can't buy health insurance from a Massachusetts on a Massachusetts plan or a New Hampshire plan or an Idaho plan. I've got to be on a California plan, right? Is, is it like that in other industries? Right. If I want to buy uh, Netflix, does Netflix is there a, a California plan for Netflix that costs different and has different shows than than a New Hampshire plan for Netflix? No. So, right there is a barrier to the free market. Not to mention a, a swath of other regulations and price controls and a whole bunch of other crap that the government has done. And you can see over history, the more the government's gotten involved, the higher the prices have been. So. We spent a lot of time on healthcare, but the reason I wanted to talk about her Medicare for all plan for that long was it is representative of her overall philosophy. So let's move to her second point. Her second point is housing as a human right. Again, this is another example of this concept of rights being something they're positive obligations on someone else but you know the idea of a right cannot be a positive obligation on someone else you can't say i have a right to the output of someone else because then what are their rights right because if you say i have a right to their output then they can say i have a right to your output and then that's actually communism right that's basically that's collectivism that is there is no private property my outputs aren't mine your outputs your productivity isn't yours right it gets collectively shared and we we share each other's all, and that's communism and as much as the the people who tout democratic socialism try and say well it's not communism it's, it's not socialism it's different it's democratic socialism that's that's what socialism is that's what communism is actually it's it, you know philosophically it's collectivization of of things it's 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 uh collectivism is the word so again the the philosophy behind Ocasio-Cortez's housing is a human right here is this idea that whenever people want something, when she sees a problem, right, people don't have X. This is her philosophy, right? People don't have X, right? Therefore, I will simply define it as a right to X. And then I can virtue signal and run around saying, hey, look, people sh- people have a right to X and they're not getting it. And somehow you know our, our western culture sensibilities really react to this idea that oh people have a right to something and they're not getting it that's a, that's unjust it, it triggers all this kind of feelings of injustice right or injustice but you don't have a right to housing uh you, you don't have a right to someone else's labor you don't have a right for someone to build a roof over your head and pay for it so it's this redefinition of right. And again, I think it's just a way for 
Uh, this they, there's this utopia this is utopia view of the world where gee, wouldn't it be nice if everyone had X? And we'll just define X as a right. But that's not what rights are. Those are entitlements. Those are things that you think that you're entitled to. And uh, this is not the first time someone has used the word entitled to describe millennials. But I don't want to paint all millennials this way because I know some of you uh, are not crazy uh, social democrats, socialist democrat, democratic socialists. Uh, I know some of you are, are rational. Thank you for being rational. But rights are not positive obligations on someone else. And if you remember that, that's, that's something that I think can serve you in life generally. You know, rights, you don't have a right to something that's a positive obligation on someone else. And when you act like you do, you can cause a lot of mis misery in your own life and other people's. One real quick point on this one, housing has been an issue for Ocasio-Cortez specifically because she talked about how she can't afford housing when she moves to Washington for her new job, because I guess she's not paid for a few months or something, and damn it, housing in Washington is so expensive. And she also talks about New York a little bit. Again, this is a failure to, to really ask why. Why is housing expensive? Well, in New York City, where Ocasio-Cortez is from, and I believe in D.C. as well, the main reason is, I mean, so, some of it is the market. A lot of people want to live there. Absolutely. That's the way it works. But rent control and zoning laws in both those cities really affect uh, housing prices. If we look at New York City, I have the numbers here. Let me just take a look quickly. If we look at New York City, it's over half of New York City is in some sort of rent controlled situation, right? Um, and it's broken in, the, the, the chart I'm looking at is broken into different categories. There's general rent control, there's rent stabilization pre-1947, rent stabilization post-1946. That seems like those Venn diagrams overlap, so I'm not sure what that means. Other regulations. So the, the point is, there's a lot of rent control in New York City. And, you know, rent control sounds all nice and, and great when you're, you've been in an apartment for 40 years and you're paying 400 bucks a month in a market where it's $4,000 a month. But it really sucks if you're out of college and you're, you know, you're a new college grad and you want to move to a city to make it on your own and, and uh, you've got a large percentage of the housing in the city tied up in, in rent control squatters, basically, who aren't paying market rates. And and landlords have to make up for that. And so because there's supply and demand here, right? The supply of available housing as a result uh, is, is, is very limited and therefore you're paying more. So this idea that, obviously this idea that housing is a human right is, is ridiculous. I talked about that, but also her specific problem is uh, obviously not unique to Ocasio-Cortez, but it's also not, uh, the problem isn't that housing isn't a human right. The problem is that the the leftist socialist policies of things like rent control and zoning laws in these cities have caused the problem that Ocasio-Cortez is complaining about. But of course, I don't think she'll see it that way. Interesting book. Speaking of housing, on the housing crisis, I have it behind me. If you're curious about the financial crisis and... Uh, how the housing market played a role. This is a great book. It's called The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure by John Allison. He was the CEO of uh, BB&T Corporation, which was one of the only banks that did not need TARP money, although he was 
basically strong-armed into taking it, which he explains in this book. Highly recommended. Okay, let's move on to her next. We've only done two. We've gone a, we're half an hour into the, the show, and we've only done two of her her platform points. But don't worry, we will we will pick it up here. So, pick up the pace. So her next one is her next platform is a peace economy, and she says. Since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the United States has entangled itself in war and occupation throughout the Middle East and North Africa, blah, 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 blah. She talks about how we're involved in all of these wars. Uh, this continued action damages America's legitimacy as a force for good, causes problems. We spend a lot of money in the military, basically. Um, she's right about all this, actually. So we, we got to give credit where credit's due. Uh, she's right. She is spot on on that one. So... Good for, good for the basic bitch millennial leftist. Uh, she got that one right. Interestingly enough, though, she, <laughs> she, she says, according to the Constitution, the right to declare war belongs to the legislative body, and yet many of these global acts of aggression have never once been voted on by Congress. Now, she's right about that, and I support that. that is, uh, that's a great point. Um, and what I really like about it is that she's a strict constitutionalist. Let's see if she'll stick with that one. That's a great stance. Let's see how principled the darling of the leftist millennials uh, is. Let's see if she'll stick to that one. She also says here in, in this, this peace economy thing, in some cases we've even acted unilaterally without the backing of the United Nations. I, I don't know why that's... If that bothers you, please explain to me why that bothers you. We're a sovereign state. Why do we have to ask the UN to do something? Uh, that just doesn't make any sense. So... Uh, especially since we pay for for the UN disproportionately. Anyway, she goes on, America should not be in the business of destabilizing countries, blah, blah, blah. So in general, I'll, I'll give her a, I'll give her a plus one. I wasn't going to keep score, but maybe I'll, maybe I'll keep score. So she gets, I'll give her a tally. She gets a plus one for that. General, generally a plus one for that position. I don't like the UN thing she mentioned, but you know, I'll give her a plus one. Okay. So what's her next position? Well, let's see. Her next position is oh, a federal jobs guarantee. I, I'm reading. Alexandria endorses a federal jobs guarantee because anyone who is willing and able to work shouldn't struggle to find employment. Employment now shouldn't is the shouldn't is this word that um, I think is much more popular with with the younger leftist generation it's you know it's not a magic word but it's treated as if it's a magic word right i shouldn't get cancer but i might right i shouldn't have to deal with the irs but i do i shouldn't have to tell my daughter to brush her teeth three times i should only have to tell her once but i do lots of things shouldn't happen right uh shouldn't is this weird kind of childlike view of the world this shouldn't happen and i get in philosophic context it's it's valid if we're talking about morals like this shouldn't be done morally like that's fine but that's not really the context that it's used it's used it's there's this obsession with comparing what we have today with some magical utopia in the heads of of these leftists. And in that magical utopia, unicorns fart rainbows in gold and 
everyone has uh, a job, and it's also a great job that is has really no downside and doesn't take too much effort and is obviously equally distributed amongst uh, every gender and sexual orientation and 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 race because no no races or genders can have preferences for jobs that's not allowed but in this utopia everyone everyone has exactly everything they want they all get the best possible health care all the time and they all get the best food and they all get everything and 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 this is the utopia and you know what there's nothing wrong with having a utopian view of the world star trek was a fine show kind of uh, you know, you could press a button on the wall and, and anything would come out of the magical replicator and there didn't seem to be any want of anything. That's not how the world actually is. And pretending that the only way to get from where we are to that is by passing jobs that say that thing that we want is mandated is... mentally deficient, right? It is stupid. So this idea that, oh, all we have to do is have the federal government guaranteed jobs and then there will be jobs and no one will struggle to find employment. That kind of may be true. I mean, there's an old, there's an old saying in the Soviet Union, right? Uh, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us, right? So... Basically, what she's proposing is actually communism. Again, this is the, hey, democratic socialism isn't socialism. You don't get it, man. It's not communism. It's different. It's democratic socialism. We have Facebook, right? I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what they're meaning by this democratic socialism, but this point is basically communism. It is a planned economy, right? It is building what jobs, right? So... Let's talk about efficiency of capital just for a moment, right? Have you ever tried to throw, uh, ever tried to throw a party at your house? You, you usually you try and plan like, okay, I'm going to have uh, this much wine or beer or other, other beverages. Uh, I'm going to have these, these kinds of food. This is the food I think people will want and this much and that kind of thing. And e even if it's a small party, it's almost almost never, I don't think I've ever got it perfectly right, where the last drop of, of, of wine or beer or whatever, everything was perfect. It was, I had exactly the, the, the amount of everything that everyone wanted. And no more. I had no excess at the end. And no one wanted anything that I didn't have. It was a perfect allocation of my resources. And the party went perfectly that way. Well, That is the arrogance of a central planner. That the arrogance of someone like Ocasio-Cortez who believes that someone in the government can decide how many people need to be doing job X and how much of Y should be produced and who's gonna want Z. That is central planning, not a party, but the entire friggin' economy. It's demonstrably ridiculous to think that you could ever efficiently allocate capital that way. And that's not my argument. This argument's been made by a plethora of economists. But it's also extremely arrogant. It is, it is, it's the, it's the height of arrogance to believe that you or some small group of people of which you are a member now, Ocasio-Cortez, could allocate capital in the market in a way that is the, quote, right way or the best way or the most efficient way 
that should offend the sensibilities of anyone who's ever planned a party or anyone who wants to make their own decisions about what they buy and where they work and what they do. So this federal job guarantee is basically communism, right? Because as soon as the federal government is, you know, guarantees labor, they got to make up jobs, you know, unless they're going to have you like dig ditches and fill them back up, which is a clear waste of, of labor. They have to try and start competing in the market and providing things people actually want, which distorts the market, which screws up other industries and puts people out of jobs. I mean, it's, it's, it's a mess. It's called communism. And, you know, there's really no dancing around this one. This is one of the most obviously communist ideas that she has here. She also goes on to say, you know, this federal jobs guarantee would create a baseline standard for employment that includes a $15 minimum wage. And I want to talk about this. And, and some other crap she, she throws in there. We get child daycare and health care and everything. The Shangri-La of employment from the government. Uh, again, not to, not to harp on it, but the government has no money. They get money from you. Uh, they tax you. And then actually, instead of spending your tax money, which would be bad, what they do is they leverage your tax money. They borrow from China and other places at you know 10x the value of your uh roughly the value of your your money and so they put your children into debt based on the tax money that you've given them and they promise a bunch of free crap that they can hand out to people in the here and now so that's the that's where the money's coming from just as a reminder but on this 15 dollars an hour thing and and it's relevant because she's going to talk about public education in a minute and you know i want to point out that 15 dollars an hour is is this this minimum wage that I guess the left has decided is the magic number for now that's going to be she wants it pegged to inflation so it'll grow think about what a minimum wage actually is a lot of people think of a minimum wage as a a rule that the employer has to follow right, you gotta pay X but that's not true that's not what it is employees don't have or employers don't have to pay $15 an hour because they can just shut down the company they can just fire people they can only hire people if they want they can say you know what we're not going to hire anyone that's uh that we don't pay more than $25 $30 an hour so anyone who we would have to pay less than that we'll just automate their jobs or outsource them to India or whatever we'll we'll find another way to deal with it we're going to minimize the number of people that we have to pay because if you're not worth $15 an hour to the company, then they're not going to pay you $15 an hour. And what what a minimum wage does is it doesn't tell a company you can't pay less than $15. Because like I said, they can pay zero. They can just stop paying, right? And not hire you. But what it does do is it tells you, you can't accept less than $15. If you want to, if you want a job for $10 an hour, you are not allowed to accept it. And who this really hurts actually is young people. And I'm reminded of this again as my daughter's starting to get older. I, I wanted, uh, she's too young to be allowed to work, but I think I thought it would be good for her to work. And I remember back to my own childhood. I had a lot of, you know, sub-minimum wage and then minimum wage jobs. And it was a way to gain work experience, to build a resume, work your way up. You're not intended to live on a minimum wage job for the rest of your life. Uh, or when I say minimum, I mean a really low wage job because I don't believe in the minimum wage, but you're not intended to, to live on that forever. It's a great, it's the first, uh, I think it might have been Thomas Sowell who said this, but I, I don't want to misattribute this. You know, 
that first job, those entry-level cheap jobs, they're the first rung on the ladder of success, right? If you can't get there, right? If your first job, maybe you're worth, I don't know, when you're 16, maybe you don't know crap and you're only worth seven bucks an hour to someone because you don't know anything and, you, you know, you're just not worth it. Well, if you can get a job for seven bucks an hour, if there's an employee or employee willing to pay, sorry, employer willing to pay seven bucks an hour, then you, you get the job. And you start to learn, and you know what? Before long, you're not worth seven bucks an hour. You're worth ten bucks an hour, and eventually, you're worth fifteen bucks an hour, and then twenty, and then twenty-five. That's how. That's how it works, and and that first entry-level job is very important for young people to learn how to have a job and to gain the skills necessary to get better jobs later. And when you have a minimum wage that prohibits them from being able to, if my daughter, she's not like I said, she's not old enough, but if she wanted to go get a job now for five bucks an hour she can't she's not allowed to get paid five bucks an hour she's not worth 15 bucks an hour yet to do anything like she can't do anything that anyone i that i can think of that anyone would pay 15 bucks an hour for but you know maybe she can sweep up a store or something it might be worth five bucks an hour i don't know so that is that minimum wage is an attack on young people looking to get experience in the labor market. That's all it is, right? And it's an incentive for companies, large corporations, to to automate. In fact, I think several years ago, I think the CEO of McDonald's was a, had a uh, robotics background and stuff. I mean, you know, these companies, are they, they're prepared for this, as you would be if you ran a company, and they'll just automate these jobs away. So anyway, let's move on. So that's, that's her federal jobs guarantee. Obviously, that one's a mess philosophically. All right, next one. Gun control slash assault weapons ban. Well, let me read the Second Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Before I do, let me preface this by saying the Second Amendment does not give you the right to bear arms. You have the right to bear arms and the right to self-defense, whether the government recognizes it or not just so happens that if you're in the U.S., you're in a country whose founding fathers did recognize the inherent right to use tools to protect yourself, both from other people and from other groups of people, including a wayward government. Here's what the Second Amendment says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The word militia does not mean the army. It actually means people who weren't part of the army. It means regular citizens. You go do your own research. I don't want to talk about this too much. It doesn't say, and, and, and you know, it doesn't say like certain arms or this or that. That's what it says. So, you know, there's lots of there's uh, there's lots of arguments here about whether outlawing outlawing guns hurts or helps. Right? There's there's one side will say. Uh, you know, uh, there's a book by John Lott, who I know the left uh, thinks is horrible and, and has been has been debunked. I don't think he's been debunked. I think there may have been some issues with some of his data, but he's not the only one who has, has made these arguments and brought data to bear on this. Uh, he has a book called More Guns, Less Crime, I think is the name. And and there's other people who will cite countries where gun laws helped. I think uh, Australia is cited a lot. turns out actually that one's kind of bogus if you look at the at the trends the, the trends predate 
uh, some of these the gun changes and and uh, gun law changes. The point is, the the argument on this one philosophically isn't whether guns re- gun laws reduce crime or not. Right. First of all, it's hard to compare. You're comparing apples to oranges when you compare one country's gun laws to another country, because countries have different cultures, they have different demographic makeups, and that leads to different levels of violence. When you have, for example, a very uniform country like Japan, where everyone is Japanese, you don't have a lot of, uh, you don't have as, as much crime. You just don't, you don't have that. When you have a, a melting pot, which is great, by the way, we love the melting pot of the U.S., but when you have a melting pot with different groups, you tend to have a lot more crime. This has been studied. Robert Putman has, has, has uh, done studies on this. You tend to have a lot more disorder socially and unrest, and that's fine. It's, a, it's the price that you pay for that. But it means it's difficult to compare apples to, to apples here because there aren't other countries that are the U.S. that have, I think there's some, something like uh, 100 million guns or something in the U.S. now. There's not other countries that are like the U.S. that you can see like, oh, what would happen if we suddenly outlawed guns? But the point, and, and, and by the way, and then there's, there's places like London, right, where I think stabbings are at a seven-year high. So you can outlaw guns all you want and then you know, other things can happen. But the point here is, you know, guns are, you know, the right to bear arms is, is a fundamental right. It's, it's the right to self-defense. It's, it doesn't get derived from the Second Amendment. Also, if you'll notice, this is the part of Ocasio-Cortez's platform where suddenly the Constitution isn't as important to her as it was earlier. She was a very strict constitutionalist on the war thing, which I, I liked. But it turns out, not so much on guns. And she clearly doesn't understand, she doesn't even understand guns. And so some of the stuff that she talks about is just kind of ridiculous. But she does make this statement. She says, where is it? The founding fathers did not have assault weapons in mind when they wrote the Second Amendment. These machines of war were brought over to the civilian market in the 1980s, along with high-capacity magazines and dramatically increased death toll. So blah, blah, blah. She's wrong. Uh, actually, you could bring you could bring uh, fifty cows home from World War II, and the founding fathers absolutely had assault weapons in mind when they wrote the Second Amendment. Uh, all guns were assault weapons. Machine guns uh, did did exist. I mean, they were big and clunky, but there there was such a thing as machine guns and cannons. Those were all allowed. They they absolutely they absolutely included assault weapons. They hadn't invented the uh, the AR-15 or or AK-47 or anything yet, but the argument that they didn't intend uh, for assault weapons is silly. Bump stocks is a... She talks about bump stocks. It's, it's just a ridiculous... Uh, a ridiculous thing to, to, to regulate. So... And she goes on with gun, you know, gun, hole, gun control loopholes and, or gun, gun show loopholes and this kind of thing and people shouldn't take money from the NRA. I won't get into that too much, but the philosophy behind this is you are not... You should be prohibited from being able to defend yourself reasonably. And the philosophy really is people... Again, it's back to this parent-child relationship. It's, well, you can't play with dangerous toys, basically. If, if it's the parent saying to the child, we can't let them touch things that might be dangerous because they might do something wrong with those things. And I'd like to point out that gun control does not mean getting rid of guns. It means 
only the government has guns. Which is interesting because I think, although it's not in her platform, I think Ocasio-Cortez certainly is concerned about police brutality. Well, if you pass gun control, guess who has guns? Only the police and law and, and, and criminals, right? And, and criminals getting guns illegally, it's not a big deal. Uh, criminals do it all the time. And it will continue to not be a big deal. So the idea that you can, again, this is this magical thinking of like, what if we outlaw this piece of technology? It, that what you can't, you can't. The only people that will not have them at that point are law-abiding citizens who probably, for the most part, won't do much wrong with them. Sometimes people people do, but uh, you know, and and the statistics on how many crimes are stopped with guns are hard to obtain because they're not always reported and that kind of thing. But that doesn't really matter. You have a right to defend yourself. And, you know, I used to teach concealed carry classes to people, and I'll tell you, about half the people in those classes were women who had been victims of assault or rape, and and they they didn't want to feel like they were just going to be perpetual victims. They wanted to feel empowered. And they were also smart enough to realize that buying a gun and not training with it was not going to bode well for them. So I do encourage training with firearms. But, you know, they, they bought the guns so they could feel empowered. And some of these women were, you know, I remember one in particular who was about 60 and probably weighed 85 pounds, a little old lady, right? And she just wanted a little revolver in her purse, right? Because she had been assaulted and she didn't want to be assaulted again. And uh, the idea that she can't have that because Ocasio-Cortez just wants the government to have guns is, is pretty ridiculous. And, and when you say the government, you mean government and criminals. Those are the people that end up with guns. And I haven't even talked about 3D printing. So if you think you can outlaw guns, think again. Metal 3D printing will become economical and affordable within the next 10 years. And it's all over at that point. So trying to put the genie in the bottle on guns is... Uh, like I said, just magical thinking. Okay, so her next her next uh, platform thing here, we're actually getting close to the end of time. Maybe I'm going to have to break this into two sections, but I'll try and go quickly now. Her next platform position, criminal justice reform and private prisons. And she says it's time to reform our criminal justice system to be safer for everyone. She believes in ending mass incarceration and the war on drugs and closing the school-to-prison pipeline. I don't know what the school-to-prison pipeline actually... I don't know what she means by closing that pipeline. Obviously, there's not a, an actual pipeline, so I'm not exactly sure. I do think ending the war on drugs is a good idea. We do obviously have a an unusually high incarceration rate that is deplorable. I don't think that we should have private prisons. I think that... Well, as an anarchist, I think eventually we should have... Uh, <laughs> everything should be private, but there probably wouldn't be prisons at that point, which is a discussion for another day. But if we're going to have a, com- a government and, and a country, then the prisons shouldn't be private. So I think, you know, to be to be generous to her on this, we can give her a plus one philosophically. She kind of thinks, hey, you know, things like marijuana should be legal, she says in this, and people should basically not be thrown in prison for nonviolent crimes. I, that's what I assume she's kind of meaning by this. So it will be generous and say, we'll give you that one. She, she complains about some stuff that I don't really agree with in, in this. But again, we'll be, we'll be generous. The criminal justice system is a mess. The war on drugs should be ended. And private prisons are a problem. So plus one, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. 
Her next item is Immigration Justice Slash Abolish ICE. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, it used to be the INS, Immigration and National Serv- uh, Naturalization Services, I think was the name. Uh, the They were replaced by uh, ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, in 2003 as part of the Patriot Act. Now, she wants to abolish the ICE. And I can't really tell what her argument is. She just says that they're unchecked, which... I don't know if they're more unchecked than INS or or the ATF or any other organization. She does say young children are being ripped from their parents and kept in detention centers without due process under Trump. So, you know, look, most of that, most of the stuff under Trump is uh, about this is fake news. It's either uh, happened under Obama as well. Uh, I, I get there was an increase under Trump, but, you know, you got to look at what happens, right? If you come into the country illegally with a child, this is what happens. People come in with a child illegally, and they get caught. Now, you've committed a crime. You've come into the country illegally. So you get caught, you go to jail. That's that's the world we live in. You want a government, that's what happens. You do something wrong, you can get caught, you go to jail. Or something illegal, I'll say. They go to jail, uh, or they go to detention centers or whatever for processing. But often, they don't have proof um, that... They're actually the parents, and there is a child trafficking problem uh, coming across the border. So it's a real issue if someone says, this is my child, and you don't really have proof. You kind of need to separate them to make sure that, you know, until you can kind of prove paternity, right, and make sure that then they're not released back to potential uh, child traffickers. So... You know, I, I don't know if we should give her a point for this one or not. I don't want to get into the philosophy too much here, other than I think her philosophy behind immigration is anyone should be allowed to come in without going through any due process, and everyone should be allowed to vote. That's She doesn't say this, but I, it's not clear what she says because she doesn't use a lot of detail here. But I think the philosophy here is basically just... Uh, let everyone in and let them all vote and because she's a globalist right and in fact the icon she has for this is uh is a globe right for this she's got icons for each of her platform points this one's a globe so this is just her being a globalist and saying there shouldn't basically be no distinction between uh the u.s and any other country basically there shouldn't be borders and anyone should be allowed to come here and vote and you know shame on anyone who wants borders i think is really the the philosophy here and obviously that philosophy is just you know it's not consistent with believing there should be a country uh, countries have borders right so and people who cross them illegally go to jail should all right so her next in the interest of time will be quick here solidarity with puerto rico uh man this one she goes through she says uh she kind of blames Trump for some hurricane problems. Uh, government has done nothing for Puerto Rico. But she has, I guess, five points here on Puerto Rico. I won't go through all of them. But the first one is she wants a Marshall Plan from Puerto Rico. Now, a Marshall Plan, is the, that's the plan that you know under which the U.S. gave billions of dollars to uh, rebuild Europe after World War II. So basically she's saying uh, I, we should give Puerto Rico a bunch of money. Give them stuff. Okay? That's one point. Uh, 
the next point is a community-led sustainable and just recovery, including protections for Puerto Rico's public education system. I mean, she wants the government to just be involved in Puerto Rico a lot. She wants, she says, the next one is an immediate waiver and full review of the Jones Act. The Jones Act is actually what kind of uh, gave U.S. citizenship to Puerto Ricans, and uh, and and created this, the a Senate of Puerto Rico and 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 stuff like that. Look, I mean, if she wants Puerto Rico to just gain their independence and 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 be independent from the U.S., I would, I would support that. That's that's fine. Sure. Um, the next point that I, I don't think that's what she wants because it seems like point one was pay Puerto Rico. Uh, point two, I think she means kind of pay Puerto Rico. She's saying they need public education and all this other stuff. So I think that's just a separate version of pay Puerto Rico. So it's pay Puerto Rico, pay Puerto Rico, waiver and review of the Jones Act, which hamstrings the Puerto Rican economy. I'm not familiar with that, so I, I don't know. I don't know about that one. Uh, and number four is basically pay Puerto Rico. Again, it's cancellation of Puerto Rico's Wall Street debt. So they can't manage their funds. They're in debt. She thinks we should cancel their debt. Uh, and then condemnation of the uh, PROMESA Act, which is like a, um, a way to try and get Puerto Rico out of bankruptcy. I guess she doesn't like it, probably because it's not canceling Wall Street debt. So this issue is basically, hey, we should pay Puerto Rico a bunch of stuff. So the philosophy behind that is... Um, I don't know. We're guilty of everything, and America should pay people. And I'm not sure what the philosophy behind that. I mean, if you want to universalize that, it's basically bad things happen elsewhere, and we feel bad for those people. Therefore, we need to pay them with taxpayer dollars, uh, which are collected at the point of a gun, just as a reminder of where taxes come from. So that's that one. Let's see... Let's see how far along I am here because I'm only on, that was through eight. You know, it's been an hour. Maybe I should stop. Maybe I'll do another, I'll do another bonus tea time maybe tomorrow or something and, and go through the last half of her platform. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of it. Uh, I didn't expect it to take, to take this long, but it did. So I don't want to burden you with a two hour long uh, episode, so I'll do another one. I, I may not do it live. I may just pre-record it and put it up. But I'll do another one uh, tomorrow, and and we'll go through platform numbers, whatever it is, eight through fifteen or nine through fifteen. I don't remember what I just said. Uh, nine through fifteen. We'll go through nine through nine through fifteen for uh, Acasio Cortez. And you know, like I said, the reason I think it's interesting to go through her platform is is she is the basic bitch of millennial leftists. And so if you want to understand what the basic position of millennial leftists is, I think Ocasio-Cortez is a good, a good place to start. So thanks for watching, everyone. As always, you can support the show at unsafeshow.com. You can also go to patreon.com slash unsafespace. You can follow us on Twitter at unsafeshow. I think actually we have a Facebook page now, probably if you search for unsafe space. Also, Carrie Smith made a deprogrammed page for us. That's another show that we do every Thursday. In fact, that's a reminder, join us this Thursday at 11 a.m. We will have Gracie West on, another former social justice warrior, to talk about the cult-like aspects of social justice. And she's been really thinking about social justice as a cult. And, and she's going to talk about her experiences there, but also analyzing social justice as a cult. 
So again, thanks for thanks for watching, everyone. I will uh, I will catch everyone possibly tomorrow, but also uh, if not tomorrow, I will see you all Thursday for deprogrammed. Thanks.